welcome to This Girl Cam, where we chat to wonderful women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon, and today I'm talking to Manuela Bouchot, Senior Vice President and European Head for Specialty Care at Sanofi. Manuela started her healthcare career at Bayer, spending 14 years with them, rising to Vice President of Marketing and New Business, before leaving to join Sanofi eight years ago. During her career, Manuela has led diverse teams across the globe, from Switzerland to the US, Mexico, France and Germany, a truly inclusive leader, passionate about developing leaders of the future who want to make a difference. She has so many insights to share, so let's get going. Hi Manuela, welcome to the show. Good to see you. Good to see you too. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, I'm really delighted to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to chatting to you. Before we begin, Manuela, first of all, am I pronouncing your name right? It's perfect. I love it. It's a Spanish name and you're pronouncing it beautifully. It's a beautiful name. So I just want to make sure that I am saying it right. Otherwise, that's a really bad start. So before we begin, if you could give us a little bit of an explanation about what you do now and more importantly, your story to date, your career to date. Absolutely. So I am the European head for specialty care business at Sanofi. So I basically lead region Europe for Sanofi. And that includes everything from immunology to neurology, oncology, rare diseases and rare blood. So lots of therapeutic areas. And uh, I love working in healthcare. I've always worked in healthcare my entire career. I've been with Sanofi for about eight years before then. I've worked for, I think, 15 or 16 years for Bayer. And yeah, I just love what we do and how we can help patients and their families during sometimes very difficult times. And making an impact on people's lives is what I really enjoy about my work. And outside of work, I am married. That's where my strange last name comes from, Bouchot. It's the Catalan. My husband comes from Barcelona, originally from Spain. And we now live in Germany. I work in Amsterdam and I have two sons. They are 11 and 13. Oh, lovely. I'm glad you told me how to pronounce your surname because I would have definitely got that wrong. There's Bouchot. Everybody gets that wrong. That's not a problem. <laughs> I would have definitely got that wrong. So take me back a little bit further. You said that you've always worked in healthcare. So yes. what was your very first role? That Interestingly, uh, you know, out of uh, school, so I did university in Germany and then I started at Bayer and I started actually as a trainee in more of a corporate trainee program. So we were able to do six months stints in different parts of the company. For example, investor relations, accounting, controlling. I worked in the mergers and acquisitions department for a while. And then coming out of the program, I started actually in a controlling, a finance role and, and loved it. I, I loved the fact that I got to know the company with an eagle eye view, if you will. Starting to understand strategy, long-term vision and ambition of the company, what we were trying to do being part of several transformation projects. And then we were working on one business development deal. And the business leader, the head of that business at that time, he at one point in time approached me and said, I think you would be great in a marketing role. And I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not a marketer. I, I love finance. I, I love the part that I'm in. I followed his guidance and said, yeah, I always wanted to work internationally. He gave me the opportunity to come work in the U.S. I had initially started in Germany with Bayer at their corporate headquarters. And through this, let's say, input and, and motivation, basically, from him to say, I think you should really try something else because you could be really good at it. 
I started to work internationally. I started to experience a completely different part of the business and I loved it and I never looked back. That must have been a scary leap. Yeah. A lot of the things that I've done throughout my career have, I wouldn't call them scary, but were courageous moves. I always loved, like I, I thrive off of challenges in general and I love learning something new. I'm very curious about learning new things and, and experiencing new parts of the business. Also working in different cultures. I always knew that I wanted to work internationally, for example, because I grew up in East Germany. That's one thing that I didn't tell you earlier. I was 14 when the wall came down and I just knew that because I wasn't able to see the world when I was little, that I really wanted to go and experience it and not just traveling it, but really living in it and also leading in different cultures. And that drove a lot of that curiosity. But I'm never, of course, when you start a new role and you start a new challenge, there's always a little bit of anxiety around it. Will I be able to make it? Will I be able to, to do this new thing that I'm supposed to be doing? But there's also a level of excitement to it. So I always think about it as what can I learn? What will I get out of it rather than being scared about it? And that gives me the courage to, to do it anyway. Yeah. So tell me more about that then when you were growing up in East Germany and as a 14 year old, that must've been a hell of an experience for a teenager. Yeah, because everything that I knew up until that moment was a completely different system, a socialist system. And then the world that you knew and that you learned how to rely on goes away. And you, at the beginning, I remember that it was scary because we just didn't know what to expect. Both of my parents, my, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a forest ranger. They had to basically re think their careers. Yeah. My dad went back to university at the age of 40. My mom took over, I don't even know how to call that in English, like a youth hostel type place. Yeah. Did something completely different versus what she had done before. And I think that was also encouraging to me because rather than being stuck in this, what are we going to do about it? They went and reinvented themselves. Yeah. And they also, I have a sister and they also always told us that they believed in us and that gave us wings, basically. They made us feel like we can do anything that we wanted to do. And so they always were so encouraging as parents that, yes, while we went through scary times and not knowing what the future will bring, to me, ultimately, it opened many doors. Yeah, I was, as I said, I was able to travel. I was able to study abroad, partially throughout my, my university times. I did all of my internships abroad. So for me, it was really an opportunity, even though initially yeah. it felt a little scary. Yeah. And I suppose that's, that's so similar to when you're talking about how you approach your work roles now. Something new can be scary, but then it opens up opportunity. Exactly. For me, any new venture is, yes, has some risk to it, but also brings a lot of opportunity with it. And I always feel like there's so much that I'm in control of, how I approach a challenge, learning something new, giving myself the time to learn something new, going into it. Like, for example, when I start a new role in a new country, for example, or with a new company, I always approach it with, okay, I'm going to give myself the time to learn. I know the beginning is probably going to be a little rocky until I, until I figure out how it all works and, and which value I can add. And until I know enough to be able to start making decisions. Yeah. And then I really decide to take it one day at a time, 
put one foot in front of the other, kind of, yeah, rather than looking at this big mountain that I still need to climb. And then when you are like one or two months in and you look back and you're like, oh, look at everything that I have already achieved, right? rather than just looking at everything else that you still need to do. So really helping yourself as well to give yourself credit rather than putting more pressure on yourself all the time. Yeah. yeah. It's that time to reflect, isn't it? About how far you've come. Yeah, it's also time to be grateful. And it's be, we are so quick to, you know, we have achieved something and then we move immediately on to the next thing, the next objective, tick the box, move on. But it is really helpful sometimes just to stop and to appreciate everything that you have been able to accomplish, everything that your team has been able to accomplish and celebrate that. Even if it's just the little things, because it makes you actually yeah, recognize how much has already happened rather than always looking at, okay, what else do I still need to do? Yeah, absolutely. So you went into your marketing role. Tell me yes. about your journey in a bit more detail there. Did you always know you liked leading people? I didn't have a big plan, to be honest. When I started out, I, I just knew that I wanted to work internationally. I always loved learning new things. I tend not to be driven by power and status. So it was never about the big jobs. It was always about, yeah, expanding my responsibilities, learning new things, tackling a new challenge. The marketing role was in then what was called biological products. It was a rare disease role. I was working on primary immune deficiency disease, a completely new area for me because I had not worked commercially on the business. Yeah. So it was already in the specialty care field, which is what I'm doing today. And in the U.S., yeah, but on the global team, the business just happened to be headquartered in North Carolina, which is where I was located. So I learned a lot on that business. I learned a lot of the customers. It was a rare disease, meaning that the patient advocacy groups were very organized as well. So I got to meet a lot of the patients that we were working for, which was super wow. meaningful and very motivating, the type of work that we were doing. And then about three years in, I was in a conversation with the region head for Latin America at that time from Consumer Healthcare. And he had a, a role open in Mexico to go and lead parts of the consumer healthcare business there. Yeah. And that was really my first leadership role, leading a team in, this was quite a lot of firsts for me. It was a new country. I'd never lived in Mexico and I didn't speak Spanish at the time. I was the only woman on the leadership team. I was the only foreigner on that leadership team. And it was the first time that I was actually leading a team. And so it was, as I said earlier, it was a rocky start. It wasn't easy initially to just figure it all out, but it was probably one of the most rewarding experiences that I've had throughout my career because I learned so much about myself. I grew tremendously. Also, thanks to my team, I had a great team. I had great colleagues that helped me really understand some of the nuances of the business, the country, the, just understanding how to lead in a different culture. Because yeah? the Mexican culture yeah. is much more relationship-based than my own culture is. So really understanding how do I adapt my leadership style effectively to that new environment was a huge learning curve for me. And so I really look back at that experience still today and say, wow, learned so much. I'm very grateful for all the rocks and the challenges along the way because it helped me to become who I am today. That's a really important point about adapting your style in different cultures. Can you tell me a little yes. bit more about that and some of your learnings from working in these different cultures? 
Yeah. Up until I went to Mexico, I had worked in Germany and the U.S. And I feel that the German and the American culture are quite alike in many ways. So you're very task focused, you get things done. And as I said, Mexico was much more of a relationship culture. So it's much more about people. You have to start building trust first. You have to start building relationships with it, with customers or your teams or your colleagues before you actually do business. Yeah? So the way you engage with people is important. The lines between what you discuss in the professional space and personal space are sometimes blurry. People bring some of their personal situations to work as well, which was something that was new to me. After that, I went to Switzerland and worked in a global role where you work across many different cultures and understanding how to create wins across different cultural environments, different countries for your global business was an, another challenge. When I then left Bayer and joined Sanofi, that I went from working for a German company to working for a French company in France, in Paris. That was a big opportunity for me because I had up until that point worked more in explicit cultures and the French culture tends to be more of an implicit culture. And understanding the difference here and, and how you can be successful in different cultural environments. I always made a point to understand the culture before I actually came there or very shortly after I arrived. So taking a few cultural lessons and comparing directly who am I from my cultural background, in which culture am I working in right now and how is it different to mine and how does it then yeah, present itself in the day to day. and what does it mean to have a discussion in Germany and a discussion in France and a discussion in Mexico? What gets put on the table and what gets discussed outside of the meeting room? And all of these little things that, you, that are not written down, the unwritten rules, is what you really learn through some of those cultural immersions. And I think they, they help you grow and become a more effective leader because the higher you get in an organization, the more you will work across a diverse network of culture. So really understanding what drives and motivates an individual, but also based on their background and where they grew up is really important. Would you tell me a little bit more about that implicit and explicit cultures that you referred to then? Yeah. Yeah. So for example, as an explicit culture, Germans tend to be when we have a problem or when we discuss a challenge, we will be very upfront about it. We'll put it on the table will be sometimes very blunt, yeah? not understanding how to say something so that it lands with the other person. So it's just everything is more out in the open and decisions are made in the room and with the people on the, on the, the table, basically. You don't need necessarily to have discussions prior to meetings to pre-align on things. So it's much what you hear is what you get, right? Implicit yeah. cultures, and I'm not trying to broad brush anything because there are also nuances, but implicit cultures tend to be cultures where some of the things that are being, that are happening are not necessarily discussed as openly. Yeah. People tend to feel more comfortable to pre-discuss things and have one-on-one -on -one pre alignments You feel a little bit the audience prior to you getting into a meeting, for example, by having discussions with people individually and figuring out, okay, what is that person, what's their intention? Where do they stand with regards to this topic? So that in the meeting, you already know where people are coming from. It's not that the decision necessarily has been made already beforehand, but a lot of the discussions have already happened before you get to the actual meeting. Yeah? And this was something that I needed to learn when I came into that environment because it just wasn't the way I was operating. 
And it's sometimes yeah. also true for some Asian cultures. It's also true for some cultures in Latin America. It's just a different way of working. It's not any less effective. It's just different. Yeah. And understanding how that culture operates and how you can be effective in that culture. Because you as a leader that is coming into a culture needs to attune yeah. with that environment. I think it's really important understanding some of those nuances and then being able to navigate accordingly. Yeah, so that gets, that must get really complex when you're dealing in with multiple cultures in, in one environment. Yeah, absolutely. It's the more diverse your teams get. And, and of course, culture is one element, like where somebody's from, right? Their nationality or their, yeah, their heritage is one element of diversity, right? There, there are many others. But the more diverse your team gets, the more challenging it is for the leader to actually bring people together and move them in, in the right direction towards a common goal. But I do think it is possible. And once you get there, the, you, the richness, that dialogue and what their team is going to be able to do together is tremendous because of that diversity. Yeah. And yeah. so what I usually try to do is with the team is to, to co-create and to align on a common goal. What are we trying to achieve collectively? Yeah. Because if you have a joint vision, and the common goal that you jointly want to achieve, it's much easier to then also compromise and say, we can't potentially make everybody happy. Yeah. Because some, somebody, some, sometimes somebody has to give in order for the broader team to be successful. Yeah. And, uh, but if we understand what our common goal is, where we want to go, and understanding that we can only be successful if we jointly drive towards that, then eventually the team will come with you. For example, in my current role, I have a European leadership team. Yeah? I have seven what we call multi-country organizations on the team. And I have countries that are, of course, within the European Union, but I also have Israel and Ukraine, for example, that are part of my region. So it's very, but we as a team, we know that we can only succeed as one European team. And that means in a world of limited resources and many priorities that we have to focus on few things and do them really well. And, and if we have an opportunity in one country and other countries have to contribute some resources in, in, in order for us to win, because overall in Europe, we're going to win if that country is going to be successful, then everybody chimes in and everybody says, yeah, I understand the bigger vision. I understand the overall objective and I'm happy to contribute to it because I know how my piece fits into the overall picture. So that's where I think if you bring people together that have common values and a common vision and a common objective, then the diversity that they bring to the table is actually enriching the conversation and allows for better decisions, a more homogeneous team. But you're right. It's not, it's not an easy thing to achieve. It needs work. Yeah. Is that something that you coach with your leadership teams at inclusive leadership? Yes. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. I think we, first of all, you have to role model it as well. When I started in this role right now, I had a fairly non-diverse leadership team of many people that had been in role for more than 10 years. It was a predominantly male team and I knew that I wanted to really drive the level of diversity, starting with gender, uh, but not only gender on my team, bringing in people from different businesses, bringing some people in externally, bringing, promoting internal talents to the team. And now I have a gender balanced team, a much more diverse team that is from different parts of Europe uh, and uh, different cultures as well. And uh, of course, you'll never be done. But I think 
role modeling that and then also working with my team and coaching my team, learning from them as well. It's not just about me coaching them. They also coach me, to be honest. Yeah, This is how we then inspire the rest of, of the organization to follow. Yeah? So they will do the work in their leadership teams at country level or at the MCO level, which is the multi-country organization. Yeah? Sometimes we have the multi-country organization basically means Germany, Switzerland, Austria is one organization. And that's what we call multi-country so that you can basically cluster a few countries together in order to make it more manageable at a region level. Yeah. Okay, sure. Tell me a bit about your the move from Bayer to Sanofi and um, the, the thought process behind making those moves. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, whenever I feel like my learning curve starts to flatten out and I'm not making the impact that I would want to make. Then I start thinking about and having conversations about where do I want to go next? What makes sense? Where can I contribute the most? Where can I add value? What would be interesting and motivating for me personally, but also where the organization needs me? Yeah? And, and the move from Bayer to Sanofi was not triggered by me, to be honest. So I got basically approached by a headhunter. I had been in the U.S., I think, close to two and a half years. So after my global role in Switzerland, I moved to a U.S. role and I was basically leading several of our businesses at Bayer in the consumer healthcare space in the U.S., so a real operational role. And I had no intention of leaving that role or Bayer at that point in time. But as it always happens, right, at that moment, I got approached and the headhunter was saying, what do you get to lose? Just have a call with, with that company and have a conversation. And, and it wasn't even an in-person meeting. It was just a conversation via video call because they were, of course, in France and I was in the U.S. And then it was the leader at that point in time that really, I loved his vision. I loved what he was trying to create with his team and Again, it was one of those things where I felt I've been with this company for 15 years. I, I loved working here, but I want to prove to myself and to others that I can make it somewhere else as well. And it was an opportunity to really help him create consumer healthcare business within Sanofi that until that moment didn't really exist. They had consumer healthcare brands and business, but it was not a priority. It was not a a business that was taken seriously at that point in time. And, and I made the bold move to go from the soon-to-be number one consumer healthcare business in the world because Bayer had just bought Merck US, you know, <clears throat> the CHC business of Merck yeah. and, and was going to become number one. And I went to the number five and everybody was like, what are you doing? Yeah. But this <laughs> opportunity to really help create a new business within a company, within a large company from scratch, I was basically... Today, you would probably call the chief marketing officer of that team. So I had all the global businesses, everything from also media buying and planning at the end, our X to OTC switch, all the marketing excellence topics. So it was a real opportunity to create something from scratch together with a group of great colleagues and peers. And you don't get that opportunity every time. And if I look back right now, it was the best decision I've ever made. Yeah? I learned so much. It was a risk. Yeah. When I arrived in, in France, like new company, new job, new team. I didn't have any network, of course. Yeah. And new country as well, which wasn't that easy for my family initially. But at the end, I learned so much. I was able to contribute a whole lot more than I think I would have been able to do in my next buyer role. So I 
would always make that decision again because it really helped me grow as a leader. It, it helped me broaden my horizon as well in terms of my ability to make an impact. And it helped me become more confident that I can make it somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So how old were your boys then when you moved? They were two and four. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my boys and my husband, of course, we've moved quite a bit. It was always funny because I, my husband and I, we both know where our roots are because we grew up in the same place. And then, and here we are moving our kids around several times throughout my career. And I have to say, though, that they are growing up as true global citizens. They're so flexible and so adaptable. And as long as our core family unit, the four of us, are strong, let's we always call ourselves Team Bouchon, right? We're one team. And as long as that is strong and healthy, then everything around us can change and it's still going to be okay. Because a house and a school, it's an environment, right? Of course, it is important and making friends is important and being part of a community is important. But so far, we've always been able to adapt and they've been always able to, been able to adapt. And, and to the point of diversity, they've grown up in very diverse environments with many different kids from all over the world. And, and they're so open because of that. And I think it's a big asset for them. They speak three languages now because of... The fact that my husband is Spanish and I'm German and they've always been going to English-speaking schools. I'm also hoping that that will be an advantage for them in the future. Definitely. Oh, you must be so proud of them, though. That's incredible. They're so adaptable, I bet, because they've been used to that, getting into new environments. Do you think either of them will follow in your footsteps? Do you think they'll go into life sciences or healthcare? We have talked to them about what they want to do when they grow up. And what I do is not in the picture at the moment, but I'm glad. maybe that will change. So I, I believe that they need to do whatever makes them happy, right? And they need to do something that they're really passionate about. That's what I do. I love my job. I love uh, what I do every day. I have fun at work, even th- no matter how challenging it is. And I want them to find that one thing that makes them as happy and that they're as passionate about as I am. So at the moment... My oldest wants to be an actor because he loves acting. So he's every theater performance at school he's a part of. He's now currently working on a show called Clue where he plays the butler. It's really funny. And I prep, prep for the role with him. And then my little one, he is between becoming a professional soccer player or a YouTube star. Still trying to work with him through the fact that I'm not sure how feasible either of that careers might be. At the moment, I still let them dream. I have a nine-year-old boy and it's about, he wants to be, yeah, footballer or YouTube. (laughs) And I think we still have time live until they have to get really serious about their job choices. So at the moment, I just let him be and enjoy himself. Yeah. Yeah. Let them dream. Hey, it's the only time in your life where I'm being encouraged. Exactly. Fabulous. You said that you've always been in healthcare. Yeah. Have there ever been moments in your life where things could have gone very differently or perhaps you wanted to do something different, perhaps when you were a little girl or when you were growing up? Obviously, your experience at 14 growing up in East Germany was fairly significant. Yeah. We talk about sliding doors a lot on this show. Have you seen the movie? Yes. Yeah, and it's such a great film. So my question for you is, have you had any sliding doors moments and what were they like? 
I'm sure that there there are more, but the two that I can come up with when I grew up, I wanted to be a teacher like my mom. It was really Mm -hmm. like I loved the work she did and how she taught and how she helped kids learn. And that was when I was little, I thought I was going to do exactly the same thing, become a teacher. And then when I went to to university, again, the world opened up to me. And I just before, when I was 14, just before I had to make a choice, do I go and study or do I go? And in Germany, you can also do apprenticeships. So you go first to learn something before you go on to university. I then decided to go directly to university and study. And I studied into cultural management initially and then into more controlling, et cetera, and, uh, and organizational management, et cetera. But I realized that teaching wasn't really my thing. It was more that I, that I was able to contribute in different ways. Yeah. And I'm not sure I honestly would have the patience to teach in today's world. So I'm glad I didn't, I didn't choose the teaching profession. And when I then went on to deciding which company I was going to work for at that point in time, consulting was a very big thing. Everybody wanted to go and work in consulting. And I interviewed with a couple of consulting firms and I interviewed with Bayer. And I chose Bayer because I felt that the people that I met and what the company did, and back then Bayer was, yes, it had a healthcare business, but it was also, it had also other divisions. What the company stood for, what it believed in, and the type of culture it was, it stood for, was much more the environment that I could see myself in. And that's what I went with. I didn't go for who paid the most money, the, the, the coolest flashy thing to do at that point in time. I went for, I do feel I belong here more than I belong there. Yeah. yeah. And, and every sliding door moment throughout my life has been much more around intuition and gut feel. I don't know how to say that. Of course, I make decisions based on fact, right? But at the end, the final decision whether to stay with buyer, whether to leave, it was all based on I had gone through all the facts and I had gone through all the pros and cons. And at the end, it was like, what feels right, given everything that I know today? And that has never proven to be wrong, I feel. Of course, I, I make mistakes. Yeah, everybody does. Yeah. But the big decisions, the pivotal moments throughout my career, my personal lives, in hindsight, were always the right ones. Yeah. Somebody said to me once that it was listening to your soul and it's, you have your ego voice and your soul voice and it's learning to tune into your soul voice. I think that's such a, look, I've just talked for five minutes and whoever said that said it so much better. (laughs) This is so much. I sometimes have to also keep my ambition in check. I'm very ambitious. I want to achieve more. I want to continue to grow. I want to continue to develop and learn new things and impact more. But then I sometimes have to, what's driving that ambition? Is it the ego or is it truly because I'm at a point where I need that next step for the right reasons? Yeah. And I think with just more experience also, I don't know, comes more more reflection. Yeah. I've gotten better at reflecting and really understanding what's driving a certain reaction, a certain emotion, and then making a decision based on, with, based on the right criteria rather than just on ego. 
You talked about your mum being a teacher and one of the things yes. that you were you most wanted to imitate almost was her style of teaching. Tell me a little bit more about that. What was her particular teaching style? Because it sounds, I'm going to take a guess, that you have carried quite a lot of that forward. That's a good question. You'd have to ask her. I, she was... She was demanding as a teacher. When you were in her class, people respected her. Sometimes when you are in class and the teachers are just basically the students do whatever they want, that never happened in her class. Yeah. So she really, it's not that she demanded respect, but she got it because of the way she was teaching, the way she took her students seriously, the way she was listening and caring about them as individuals. Not, it, it wasn't just a job for her. It was really, again, as I said earlier, it was her passion, she loved it. She prepared well for all of her classes. I still remember her. She never pulled out the stuff from last year and then told it again to the new class. It was always, how can I make this interesting? How can I learn from past experience to make it better? Who are the people in the class that need more help, more support? How can I bring them along? But she expected a lot. She demanded that people paid attention. She demanded that they prepared. And they become prepared to class. The people loved working for her. And it's amazing how many students she's still in touch with today, many decades after she stopped working, and how the teachers of that area, she lives in a fairly small region, but they, they still meet every month. Like 20 people wow. that were teachers like 30, 40 years ago. So the point on community, you're part of a team. You're not in this for your own good. You do something... To, to bring other people along, to help them develop into amazing adults, hopefully one day. You do your part as much as you, you do. But of course, you also expect something in return from those students that they put in the work, that they put in the effort. Yeah, that's, that's how she taught. Yeah. So do you think that you embrace a lot of that in your leadership style? I think I do the core values that my mom and dad educated us on or that we all believe in around just be honest, show up with integrity, show empathy as well, but try to, you know, be reliable, be committed to what you do. Yeah, just all of those are very much aligned. And of course, it's not a surprise, right? Because my, my mom and my dad raised me. So it's, I think that is the foundation for all of it. But I do think she has been a role model for me. I, I, there are a few things that I do differently than her, but for the majority, I really admire, from, admire my mom for who she is, what she stands for, and, and you know, what she has, what she has role modeled for us as, as her daughters. Yeah, I'm sure. Another thing we talk about a lot on this show is bias, any bias, whether it's gender bias or any other that you come across in the workplace. What sorts of experiences have you had in that regard? So I personally, first of all, I think we all have bias. Yeah, I've actually done a, an unconscious bias test one. And, and there's also, I have a slight bias because again, it's little things like when you ask anybody really, when you think about a doctor, how would, would it be a man or a woman? And most people of my generation still think more of a man, right? Same is true for a lawyer. So really putting people into buckets, a kindergarten teacher mostly a woman, right? So a nurse, mostly a woman. So that, that traditional bias, even though I have chosen my husband and I've chosen a very different constellation for our family, I'm working, my husband is a stay-at-home dad, right? But even though that is the case for us, 
I grew up in a different world, right? Where there were still gender roles. So I need to be really conscious of that bias and, and make sure that I fight it. Yeah? The same is true for people that are more like me. Like I tend to be high energy, very passionate about things. I'm not a full extrovert, but I need to be very cautious that I don't just hire people who are like me, yeah? that I bring people together that complement each other. My finance head, for example, she's an introvert. She's very different from me. And I'm so grateful for that because she thinks differently. She looks at things differently. I need to make sure she has a voice yeah? in every conversation that we have as a team. And that voice is being heard because it matters. And yeah? so I try to be really thoughtful about um, especially recruitment decisions that I check in with my bias and that I have people interviewing together with me that have a different perspective you know, and bring something complementary to the table. Personally, I have never had the feeling that I was passed over for a role because I'm a female or that I had a harder time in the work environment because I'm a female. But I hear that a lot from, mm -hmm. from many of my colleagues. And this is not just, this is a general topic, right? For women in the industry, beyond this industry. And it is something that uh, I'm really trying to champion. I try to champion women because we are not yet there where we want to be. 50-50 representation at all levels of the company is ultimately where we need to be. And, and that doesn't mean that women get the preference in any case. But as, as soon as, the, as you have two equal talents for a role that meet requirements and you don't have a generalist team, you should, the woman in this case, if you need more women on the team, the woman should get the preference. And I also try to encourage, I mentor a lot of women throughout the organization because my job, in addition to being successful in my role, is also to help other women succeed yeah? and, and really coach them if they encounter challenges, help them with career advice, really paying it forward. That's the way I, I look at that, right? It's not just about doing a good job so, so that I can continue to grow, but really bringing a lot of women with me on that journey so that yeah. in a couple of years, we don't even have to talk about it anymore, ideally. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And coming on shows like this is really helpful. So thank you for coming on. Welcome. So what, one other thing I was going to ask you, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about being a mentor then, one of the things you said earlier was when you moved to that marketing role and that person who encouraged you to do that. Have you had very specific mentors yourself through your career, do you think? Yes, I did. And I do. I actually think mentors are really important. Ideally, not just people that work with you in the same company, sometimes people that are not even working in your industry, but um, people who have a real interest in, in seeing you succeed, who want to move forward, but that are also willing and able to be brutally honest with you. Yeah. yeah. Because that's, that's what you need in order to, yeah, to grow. You don't always get everything right. Yeah? And to have a sounding board as well, somebody that is not as close as you are or your bosses or where your colleagues are to, to the business and the environment that can look at your career also from an external perspective and say, is that a good decision for you to make and why? So that's why I think mentors yeah. are absolutely critical. Yeah. Have they always been internal for you or do you have mentors externally as well in all sides of your life? 
Yeah, I have also external mentors. I have one or two internal ones. I have some from my previous company still. And I have people that I have and have crossed paths with throughout my life yeah, that have yeah. become either friends or, or people that I look up to and that are, that have been a part of my journey that are very insightful and that I check in from time to time with you. You have to nurture those relationships, right? But there, there are some people that work at different companies and, uh, you know, that are not, no longer working. I have a former coach of mine who, who has uh, become a mentor right now, who is a poet and an actor and has nothing to do with business whatsoever. So yeah, very different walks of life, but people who know me and as I said earlier, who are willing to really be honest with me and hear your choices. How do I see it? To ask the right questions as well, because it's not necessarily that they will and they should be making a recommendation for you. It's more a sounding board. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. I have to let you go. I mean, but I could honestly just sit and talk to you for hours. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I really appreciate it. It's been yeah, so good to talk to you. Pleasure. Uh, thank you for I've the questions. Oh God, <laughs> honestly, I've got so many more for you. I might do another one and at a later date, but you've got so much to, to share about, particularly about that inclusivity piece. And I'm just fascinated hearing about your story. So thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. You're very welcome. Um, and that's it from me for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done so yet and you are enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe or hit follow. It makes a huge difference. As always, go to www.thisgirlcam.com to see this interview in print and to find out who my guest is next week. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, all under This Girl Cam. Thanks again, everyone. Bye for now.